This is Nick Dodge and Allison Markowski with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The current Dane County order mandating masks has once again been extended, this time until the start of February 2022. Public Health of Madison and Dane County says the order comes amid rising COVID-19 cases and concern over the Omicron variant. Daily case averages in Dane County in December are at the highest levels all year, with the current average of 255 people testing positive per day. The order, as the others before it, calls for everyone ages 2 and older to wear a mask when indoors and when other people are present. Dane County officials will be holding a public hearing early next month to discuss the mask mandates, WPR reports. An informal meeting was held last week in the rural town of Barrie in Dane County after three Dane County supervisors called on local health officials to end the indoor mask mandates until the public could weigh in. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has said that they will discuss the county's mask mandates after a lawsuit was brought forth by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, a conservative legal group. WILL filed the case at the beginning of 2021, saying the emergency orders issued by Public Health of Madison and Dane County was outside of their authority and restricted life and commerce in the county. They argue that a public health emergency can only be declared by the city and the county, not by Public Health of Madison and Dane County, and that the mask mandates cannot be valid until then. The court originally turned down hearing the case last year, stating that it should be heard by a circuit court first. The circuit court sided with the county and maintained that the emergency order was valid. Will then filed a petition to then take the case to the Supreme Court, which the court granted. In related news, the state health department issued a public health advisory today as COVID cases continue to rise after the Omicron variant was discovered in the state last week. DHS says that there is a serious risk that a continued increase in COVID cases across the state will overwhelm already strained healthcare systems. DHS is asking everyone to get vaccinated and get the booster as soon as possible. They also ask that everyone keep holiday gatherings small and get tested before visiting others. DHS says that they anticipate a rapid increase in COVID cases in the coming weeks as the Omicron variant continues to spread across the country. Democratic Representative Greta Neubauer of Racine was unanimously elected as Assembly Minority Leader today, the Capital Times reports. The vote comes after current Minority Leader Gordon Hintz of Oshkosh announced that he would step down from the position last week. Hintz spoke at an open caucus earlier today, thanking his colleagues and saying that it was an honor and a challenge to lead the minority. Representative Neubauer was nominated to the position by Madison Representative Francesca Hong, who said that Assembly Democrats need a recalibration, with Neubauer being the best person for the job. With a new minority leader comes a new assistant minority leader as well, with Representative Kaylin Haywood of Milwaukee winning the vote. A City of Madison board has made a hiring decision for the city's first independent police monitor, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The finalist, Byron Bishop, has served as the manager of the city's Department of Civil Rights and Equal Opportunity Division. 
The Madison Police Civilian Oversight Board offered Bishop the job at the end of last week. The contract will still need to be finalized by human resources, as well as go before a final vote before the city council. If Bishop declines the job, the hiring process would start at square one. The position is the first of its kind in Madison and years in the making, a recommendation of several work groups over the years looking at policy changes to the Madison Police Department. The same police oversight board is the subject of a civil rights lawsuit from a former military police officer who applied for the position but was not chosen as a finalist. And now, on to today's top stories. Wisconsin's 2021-2022 wolf hunt is off as a court-ordered injunction will likely stay in place until next spring. While the official hunt may be blocked, wolf poaching remains a concern for wildlife advocacy groups. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has the details. A Wisconsin court has effectively ended any chance of a winter wolf hunt in the state. A coalition of wildlife advocacy groups sued earlier this year to stop the hunt, which was originally set to begin in November and was put on hold while the case was in court. The court schedule indicates a final decision likely won't come until next spring, after the window to host a wolf hunt closes. Melissa Smith, with Friends of the Wisconsin Wolf and Wildlife, one of the groups that sued to block the hunt, calls it a victory for conservationists and hunters. We do not believe hunters are on the other side of this issue. Hunters are with us. Real hunters don't kill wolves, and real hunters are true conservationists. Smith says briefings on the lawsuit will proceed through the winter and into the spring. While the scheduling means this year's hunt is effectively over, the fate of a 2022-2023 hunt is up in the air. Smith says there's still one threat facing Wisconsin's wolves this winter, poachers. She says poaching is an underreported crime, making it difficult to assess its impact on the state's wolf population. But organizations like hers have seen an increase in social media posts encouraging illegal hunting. Poaching is a significant issue. It always has been, whether you know, wolves are protected federally or not. Friends of the Wisconsin Wolf and Wildlife and two other wildlife advocacy groups are offering a combined $20,000 reward for information leading to the successful prosecution of poachers. Poaching incidents can be reported on the DNR's phone tip hotline. Researchers are still assessing the impact of February's hunt, which lasted about three days during the wolves' breeding season. Adrian Trevis with the Carnivore Coexistence Lab at UW-Madison says his research indicates holding another hunt this winter could have reduced the wolf population to a critical level. We just have never had a hunt in February and that affected so much uh, of the wolves' reproduction across the state. Therefore, we're in uncharted territory. Uh, about how many packs bred, how many pups survived. During the February hunt, which the DNR was compelled to hold after facing a lawsuit, hunters shot 218 wolves, blowing past their quota of 119. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Wisconsin state legislators have introduced a bill that would create a state-funded environmental program. WORT reporter Ben Kern has more. 
Environmental reform was at the forefront of state legislative proposals introduced last Friday. One of the larger proposals came in Senate Bill 773, which would involve the creation of the Wisconsin Climate Corps. This state-based program would fund environmental restoration and innovation projects with a sponsoring nonprofit organization. If passed, the Climate Corps would offer employment opportunities for youth workers between the ages of 16 to 30. These participants would earn a $15 per hour wage, receive housing stipends and health insurance, and 50% of them would need to be from underserved populations. Chelsea Chandler is Climate Solutions Director at Clean Wisconsin, an environmentally focused group that has lobbied in support of the bill. She says the participants would help advance numerous different environmental projects across the state. The bill itself is basically creating a, a statewide program to engage in um, climate-related work like uh, restoring natural lands, um, climate resiliency projects, and then projects in uh, home energy efficiency and weatherization. Chandler also mentions planting trees and building gardens as potential projects through this proposal. A list of senators were involved with the bill, including Senator Melissa Agard, a Democrat from Madison, and Chris Larson from Milwaukee. Senator Larson says the Climate Corps took inspiration from history. So it's, it is, um, as the name kind of implies it for those who follow History, it follows the Civilian Conservation Corps that uh, was built as part of the, the New Deal era of giving people jobs at uh, times of high unemployment. So uh, given the huge disparities in wealth right now in our country and given the huge problems of uh, climate change, uh, this, this helps solve both of those with one piece of legislation. The bill is part of a larger environmental package unveiled by state Democrats last month. It's called the Forward on Climate Package and it consists of 22 bills focused on increasing employment opportunities through socio-environmental programs. Senator Agard was one of the key supporters of the bill package, and she urges the importance it has on young adults. Well, not only does this bill implement education for younger generations, but it also is a path towards employment and training for young people in Wisconsin by um, immersing them in hands-on opportunities to learn not only about themselves and increase their uh, employment opportunities, but also to invest in our outdoors across Wisconsin. Also included in the bill, funding for special education, which Senators Larson and Agard admit is unrelated. They tell WORT it represents their ongoing effort to improve education in the state. The bill comes amidst the ongoing voting process in the U.S. Senate over the Build Back Better Act, a $2 trillion initiative from the Biden administration that, among other things, aims to increase funding for environmental projects like a federal civilian climate corps. Senator Agard says, though they are at different levels, they represent the same effort. It's not, a, it's not an either-or. Right. This policy that we're putting forward is not in tension with what is happening in Washington, D.C., and what is happening in Washington, D.C. is not in tension with what it is that we are doing here. In fact, um, they complement one another, but they are not dependent on one another. The bill is currently under consideration by a Senate committee. The next stage in the process, a public hearing, has not been scheduled. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ben Kern. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
The over 100-year-old San Damiano Friary has sat empty for years, and after the owners sought to demolish the building, the community responded and asked the city of Monona to purchase the property instead. WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Andrew Kitzler, president of the Friends of San Damiano nonprofit, hoping to reimagine the property into a public space. The San Damiano Friary was first built in the 1890s and deeded to the Norbertine Order, a Catholic religious order, in the late 1920s. But as the building has sat empty for years, the city of Monona officially purchased the 10-acre property on the shore of Lake Monona earlier this year. Now, the Friends of San Damiano are raising funds to turn the property into a public space. With me today is Andrew Kitzler, president of the Friends of San Damiano. Andrew, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So to start things off, the city first acquired the property in June of this year. What have the Friends of San Damiano been up to these last six months? Yeah, that's a good question. And we actually have been really active almost over about two years now. So we actually formed in June of 2020. And so we've really been working hard since then to really advocate for the property uh, as far as a public asset as well as to help the city with fundraising efforts. Uh, Purchasing being one of the bigger fundraising pieces, but then also the next coming pieces that are moving forward, including a master planning process, uh, and then whatever capital improvements are in relation and as a result of that master planning process. So the last six months, we have really solidified our foundation in our partnership working with the city. We've built relationships with Uh, community organizations. Um, We've really worked on our fundraising efforts in partnership with the city to, again, raise money for the master planning process and then also the purchase of the property and then continue our communications efforts. So the last six months, we've been super busy and we've been really happy. We've had um, a cleaning day on the property this past summer. We had over 175 residents and also non-residents of Monona, just the broader community, all the way as far as Green Bay, somebody came down and helped out. So uh, we've really wanted to get people on that property and learn more about it. So you mentioned that you've been in the process of fundraising for the park, and you also just received a $25,000 grant from the Madison Community Foundation as well. What will this money be put towards? Yeah, so um, as I had mentioned, a majority of our efforts at this exact moment is raising $150,000 towards a master planning process. Um, So the steering committee that, again, is uh, in partnership with the city will um, select a firm and recommend a firm to the city council for their approval that will really do a transparent, inclusive, broad community input Uh, on what people see in this property. And I mean community even outside of Monona, even though it's the city of Monona property. um, We're looking outside that because we as the Friends of San Damiano really look at this as a regional destination uh, and really a property that's unlike any other property along Lake Monona. And so the master planning process will not only get uh, community input, but it'll also uh, create conceptual plans for what this property will do and give us as a friends kind of next steps on our fundraising efforts. So um, 
we're really looking at uh, raising money for that at this exact moment. So as you mentioned, the uh, grant that we just received today from the Madison Community Foundation is an immense help in that effort. It puts us about at the halfway point of raising the $150,000. We have a goal of hitting that before June 1 when we hope to have and start the master planning process forward. And that master planning process will take about 12 to 18 months into the future. So we hope to have conceptual plans and a real good idea of what this property will look like in the future um, come the end of uh, 2023. So what is on the timeline? What happens after the master planning process is completed? Where do you go from there? Yeah, that's another great question. So um, we believe that the master planning process will create conceptual plans that will also include a phased approach. So um, if, that, if you've been on that property or anyone who's been on the property knows that there's a house on that property and what the city is currently doing is a structural analysis of that house. Uh, and that will really give us and guide us on our input and conceptual plans of what do we do with that facility? What does that facility look like? And, and how much would renovating or building a new facility be? Um, and so after the conceptual plan, uh, Again, we believe that there'll be a phased approach to implementing the variety of recommendations that come on board. I would imagine one of the first um, things that we will tackle as a friend to fundraise for would be uh, that facility, that house renovation or whatever it you know, looks like depending on structural analysis and depending on the community input. Um, and you know, that could be millions of dollars of fundraising effort and then we would roll on to the other steps as we go on. So one thing with the, the master planning process, we do hope that there will be a recommended phased approach depending on people's input and what they're looking to see on the property. So speaking back onto the master planning process, what's that process going to look like and what do you hope to turn that park into? Yeah, so I mean, I have no uh, prior conceived notions of what this property will look like. I will tell you, um, I myself and the majority of the people I have uh, spoken with uh, really look to conserve a majority of the, the property as, as open space. Uh, again, there's the house on the property, so that's really the unknown of what that looks like and what it will look like into the future. Um, but, but really, so there's, 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 there's no plans, there's no ideas of what that will look like. Uh, the master planning process uh, will be an interesting one because we're really hoping to get a wide, wide array of uh, of input from a broader community. So it will be information sessions. It will be online sessions. It will be emailing. It will be, you know, social media, uh, outreach and different things like that. Um, you know, coming to you where you are and vice versa and making sure that we're really updating the public as we move forward. So there's going to be a lot of engagement and a lot of, uh, hearing what people's ideas are, what, what they like about the property, what they don't like, how they access the property. Um, so really getting a lot of information. And then how I see it playing out, uh, really after we gain a lot of that, at least initially, the firm would really create a few conceptual plans, um, some options that then would go out to the public for again, an additional input and ideas. Uh, of manipulation of yes, this, not that. Um, and again, getting more and more feedback and, and feedback will come from individuals. They'll come from organizations that, you know, might want to partner. They'll come from, 
the Ho Chunk Nation school district, um, you know, Monona residents, non-residents, those types of things. So we really want to get as much input as, as we can. And actually, um, our goal is to have over 5,000 unique participants in our engagement through this. Um, and so then after we get a feedback from conceptual plans, we'll um, go back to the steering committee and the steering committee will review some plans. If there's a necessity to go back out with a few more options and ideas to the um, general public, uh, certainly there'll be the option to do that. But then ultimately what will happen, a recommendation will come from the steering committee to go before the council and the council will ultimately vote on uh, what the plan would be. Andrew, do you have any final thoughts on the project that you would like to share? Nothing in specific, but I, I would just share and encourage uh, all your listeners to uh, go to the property. It's open to the public uh, during daylight hours and whatnot. Um, it is a wonderful place to walk around. It's still a wonderful place to have a picnic and enjoy a sunset, uh, even though it's a little bit chillier out there. Um, but I think it's people don't understand the the immensity and the serenity that this uh, property has to offer until you're on the property. So, um, you know, go on the property, experience it, reach out, uh, go to our website, sandamianominona.org, and there's ways to reach out to us and let us know what you think if you want to be involved. Uh, and obviously, you know, we're, we're always fundraising and particularly for the master planning process. So um, reach out and there's a donate button on our website and we um, we would welcome any sort of all all sides of, of donation so um that's uh, uh it, it's just a wonderful project to be involved with and i'm so happy that now madison community foundation is being uh is partnering with us and we're continuing to find these successes and we're really happy about it I've been speaking with Andrew Kitzler, president of the Friends of San Damiano. Andrew, thank you again for talking with me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout takes a look ahead at local government. A Gen Z conspiracy theory turns out to be effective satire. And we review two new movies on the screens. But for now, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines, and we'll be back in a flash. The time is now 6.33, and you are listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Allison Murkowski. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, we sit down with Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com to scan city and county agendas for what's up in local government. This week, we have trees, jail consolidation, and PFAS. Conkle joined WORT's Dylan Brogan this afternoon. right it's monday that means we're speaking with brenda conkle from forwardlookout.com brenda let's dive right into it we'll start with dane county 
Tuesday, 3.45. It's a little bit of an abbreviated week. Um, it says 3.45 a.m., but I'm assuming the tree board is meeting at 3.45 <laughs> p.m. Is that correct? I am assuming that is correct All as right. well. <laughs> you never know with those tree people. So what's the tree board up to? Um, they have a bunch of work groups that they'll be um, getting uh, getting input about. Um, they have tree board communications, tree board outreach, and tree board policy. That's right. You've heard it here, folks. Tree board. They have all of these work groups. So if you're interested, get involved. <laughs> They're also going to be talking about PSAs and uh, winter radio ads, as well as Dane County Tree Canopy Working Group Report. So um, if you're interested in trees, it's the place to be. Yes, it is. Um, and what about uh, the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, 515? Uh, looks like they will be talking about relatively routine items, right? Um, yeah, they had a bunch of routine items. Um, I picked out some of the more interesting ones. Um, there is the chief medical examiner. They are appointing that person. I'm not even going to try to say their name. Um, they also are um, looking at a grant for tactical response team sniper training course. Hmm. Um, so if people are interested in policing, they might be interested in that. There's also another grant for the sheriff's office about hazard devices for a bomb suit protection equipment. Um, and then they are also going to be uh, looking at a program to encourage making fentanyl testing strips available for people um, who are in the midst of the opioid overdose crisis, um, trying to make sure that people can remain safe. And then they have a couple of things. Um, they have a presentation by emergency management to assist those who are unsheltered and facing extreme cold weather. The Sheriff's Department will be doing a presentation on the jail consolidation project, and then they're getting some reports from the Criminal Justice Council. All right. Uh, and then we're still on Tuesday now, the Public uh, Works and Transportation Committee. Uh, all these meetings are virtual, if I didn't say that already. It uh, looks like they'll be taking uh, a hard look at stuff doing with stuff having to do with the airport and, as well as the the jail consolidation project. Yep, they have a whole bunch of contract amendments, extensions, and change orders. Um, but again, they'll be getting a presentation on the jail consolidation project, um, and they'll be getting that from Deputy Director Todd Draper. So both of them meeting about the same time, both getting reports. Uh, interesting to see how that's going to work out. It is a short week uh, with the holidays coming up, so we'll talk about the Lakes and Watershed Commission, its executive committee, which meets 6 p.m. on Wednesday. Looks like they're just approving the minutes and talking about when they're going to meet next year. Yep, that's all they've got on their all agenda. Right. So pretty boring um, hard there. To tell, yeah, hard to tell if they even had any agenda items on there. Huh. All right, well, uh, we'll... If you want to know about the, the the Lakes and Watershed Commission, there you go. All right, and we'll move on to the city of Madison now. Uh, already happened today was the Monona Terrace Community and Convention Center Board, their Operation and Marketing Subcommittee. Obviously, the pandemic has had uh, a, a huge impact on the Monona Terrace as well as other things involving events uh, in downtown and the rest of the community. So w what are they talking about? They're primarily looking at uh, how to get sponsors for some of the events that they have there and working on some of the materials that they think would be valuable to anybody who might be interested in sponsoring some of their events. They're also going to be looking at programming updates and getting some um, other input about sponsors for um, various projects. And then they have uh, ideas for anniversary themes. So a little bit of brainstorming there at the end. 3.30, the President's Work Group on, the environmental, on Environmental Justice is meeting. That already took place. What, um, PFAS is on their agenda, right? 
Yep, they have been pretty much exclusively focusing on PFAS and various aspects of it. Um, they'll be getting a presentation from Department of uh, Health Services at the state, as well as um, a discussion about uh, PFAS outreach strategy. And so um, basically that's been their main focus for the last probably four or five meetings. Just probably wrapping up now is the Sustainable Madison Committee, uh, which relatively new committee kind of formed after several committees mashed up together. So what was on their agenda? They're having a public hearing on natural hazard mitigation strategies. Um, and then they'll be getting a presentation from the city of Madison facilities uh, department. And then they will also be getting a building policy update as well as talking about their um, city and MGE agreement and the work group that goes with that. And a hot meeting already in progress is the Transportation Policy and Planning Board, 5 p.m. in progress. Uh, they'll be talking about bus rapid transit and the transit-oriented development. So it'll be interesting to see exactly uh, what what this committee talked about tonight since a big project they're considering, as well as other things, right? Yep, they'll be talking about that, and they'll also be talking about the transportation demand management proposal, which is about parking, and then they will be talking about their 2022 work plan, um, and then there may be some questions about a funding memo and the director's report. 6 p.m. Uh, tonight, uh, the Humanitarian Award Commission, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, they'll be talking about their upcoming program, right? They are. They'll be talking about um, who to... Um, potentially nominate for their winners for the Martin Luther King Awards. That hasn't Awards happened that they yet. Have. They're running out of time. They got they don't even have a month. Yeah, yeah, they they're still working on it. All right. <laughs> um they're also going to be talking about the 2022 King Coalition program and getting updates on that as well. And tomorrow, Tuesday, 12:15, the Building Code, Fire Code, Conveyance Code and Licensing Board is meeting. Exciting stuff. What's on their agenda? Huh. Most certainly is. Um, 1919 Alliant Energy Way, hmm. which is the building that's behind the Alliant Energy Center. Um, they are proposing a temporary structure of 65,000 square feet Whoa. to house the trade center of the World hmm. Dairy Expo. And for that, they need a variance. And so they have that one item on their agenda. And then they'll also be talking about a subcommittee uh, for appeals. Well, let's hope they have a means of egress. Yeah. It's not going to get approved otherwise. All right, just some zoning code humor. 4 p.m., The not even humor, Brenda. I don't even know what, I, what I'm doing. All right, anyway, 4 p.m., the Ulbrich Botanical Society Board of Directors uh, is um, accepting a resolution and getting some reports. Anything of note? Um, no, the, their agenda usually is full of lots of reports, and it is, yet again, um, but there was one resolution allowing the new director there to accept funds on behalf of um, the Oberk Botanical Society board, and that is um, for a, a grant, I believe. We're really scraping the barrel here, but it's a short week. All right, 5.30, uh, the, just one last one. Well, the, hey, the ad hoc landmark at 5.30 tonight, or 5.30, is it tonight? No, 5.30 Tuesday. 532 Tuesday, the Ad Hoc Landmarks Ordinance Review Committee is going to be looking at the Historical Preservation Ordinance, right? Yeah, you, I think they've got to be getting close to being done with this, but they are once again looking at the Draft uh, Historical Preservation Ordinance and then talking about additional public engagement. And that's it for the week. There, It is, it is a short week. There's no meetings at the city on Wednesday or Thursday. And uh, if you want to know about what is happening this week in local government, though, you can always head on over to forwardlookout.com. So, Brenda, 
Have a happy holiday, Merry Christmas, all that, and we'll talk uh, maybe next year. All right. Definitely next year. It's a date, okay? <laughs> okay. All right. It's a plan. Thank you. On tonight's The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson travels down to Brazil to look at the assassination of union organizer and Amazon defender Chico Mendes. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing This strong. Wednesday, December 22nd, is the anniversary of the assassination of Chico Mendez in 1988 in Brazil. He was a union organizer with the Rubber Tappers Union, a rainforest protector and worker party leader. Born in 1944, Francisco Alves Mendez Filin was the son of a soldier of the Rubber Army. The 50,000 men recruited in 1943 from Brazil's impoverished Northeast and shipped to the Amazon to tap rubber for the Allies' war effort. The government gave tappers little support. When the war ended, the government reneged on its promise of compensation and tickets home. The trappers were forgotten, and many, like Mendez's father, never returned home. Chico grew up in the forest and began tapping as a child. He was influenced by liberation theology and former Communist Party members. He helped found his state's branch of the PT, the Workers' Party. As president of his hometown, Chavari Tappers Union, he helped set up a national organization to bring the tappers' fight to save the forest to global attention. American environmentalists brought him to Washington to persuade the World Bank, the Inter-American Bank, and Congress not to fund cattle ranching in the Amazon. It was on this trip he first proposed setting aside forest land for sustainable use or extractive reserves. In 1987, Mendez won the UN's Global 500 Award for his environmental achievements although he saw himself primarily as a fighter for a more just society. As Chico said, At first I thought I was fighting to save the rubber trees. Then I thought I was fighting to save the Amazon rainforest. Now I realize I am fighting for humanity. His opponents were cattle ranchers who started moving into the Amazon in the 70s, encouraged by the military government and bank financing. After the dictatorship's overthrow in 1985, the landowners formed a paramilitary group to intimidate, beat, and kill unionists. Mendez was targeted because of his successful international lobbying and organizing of the rubber tappers' nonviolent resistance. Men, women, and children formed human barricades known as Apaches to prevent the bulldozers from tearing down trees. Mendez was shot dead by the son of a rancher he was protesting. Brazil's government sent three men to jail for the murder. After 19 years, they were freed. But as Mendez's colleague, Gomer Cindy Rodriguez, said, the assassination backfired. Those who killed Chico got it wrong. They thought by killing him, the Tappers movement would be demobilized, but they made him immortal. His ideas still have a large influence. After years of pressure, his supporters forced the government to set up special protected forest lands after Mendez's vision. The first and largest was named the Chico Mendez Reserve, and 10,000 people live there. There are 68 such reserves, over more than 52,000 square miles. They are managed cooperatively by local people who keep the forest healthy while gathering rubber, nuts, and other products to sell. Trees are sustainably harvested, and there is an eco-lodge. Some have electricity in schools, children who have graduated from the university, and tappers who have become forest guides. 
After years of grassroots efforts, the Workers' Party came to power in 2002 when Lula da Silva was elected president of Brazil. In 2004, the Workers' Party environmental minister ordered regulations that slowed down deforestation by 80 percent. But in 2012, Dilma Rousseff, Brazil's president from the Workers' Party, weakened Amazon protection laws under pressure from the landowners. Under the current Brazilian president, Bolsonaro, elected in 2018, the Amazon is again Brazil's Wild West. Mendes would have recognized today's destructive forces. Although he is remembered as an environmentalist, he was first and foremost a union activist, campaigning on behalf of rubber tappers, whose way of life was being decimated along with the Amazon. He had personal experience of the consequences. Tragically, the pace of assassinations for those protecting their lands has increased since Chico Mendes's day. In Brazil, 919 people have been killed between 1985 and April of 2011, with trials held in only 27 cases. Worldwide, 212 people were killed defending their land in 2019, according to a recent Global Witness report. Shockingly, Colombia and the Philippines alone account for half of the killings. 24 were killed in Brazil. 90% of them in the Amazon. Courageous people continue to fight back and deserve our solidarity. And that is our story for today. For the Passes of Past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. You might take birds for granted. After all, who could think that our feathered friends are a vast government cover-up? They're not, of course. But a Gen Z parody of conspiracy theories has gone viral claiming just that. And as feature contributor Teresa Yen reports, the Birds Aren't Real parody can be a real insight to effectively combating online information, misinformation. Here's this week's edition of Bridging the Gap. Since the Eisenhower administration, the U.S. government has been committing genocide on the entire bird population and replacing these birds with sophisticated robot replicas equipped with five megapixel cameras and a sophisticated tracking system that can follow your every movement. I know this is horrifying, but please remember, stay calm. It is estimated that that's a fake ad from the Birds Aren't Real movement. The organization claimed that President Eisenhower has been conducting mass genocide of birds and capturing the remaining ones to turn into surveillance robots. The Birds Are in Real movement is here to protest it. At first glance, this organization seems like just another government conspiracy theory group, fear-mongering with wild claims and conclusions. But there's a generational twist. Birds Aren't Real is a movement created by Gen Z social activists as a way to protest conspiracy theories. This is Bridging the Gap, 
a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the generational differences between Gen Z and other generations. The Birds Aren't Real movement was started by Peter McIndo, a 23-year-old in Memphis. He's featured in a recent New York Times article from technology reporter Taylor Lawrence, who concludes that, quote, What Birds Aren't Real truly is, they say, is a parody social movement with a purpose. In a post-truth world dominated by online conspiracy theories, young people have coalesced around the effort to thumb their nose at, fight, and poke fun at misinformation. It's Gen Z's attempt to upend the rabbit hole with absurdism. End quote. McIndo started creating the lore and characters for the movement, making it up as he goes. That ad we heard from before? It's from 2019, not 1987. On the Birds Aren't Real website, you'll find a comprehensive fake history of the movement dating back, supposedly, to the 1980s. All of it is made up by McIndo and his friend to make a point. The real intent of Birds Aren't Real, McIndo says, is to bring awareness to the amount of misinformation that we encounter on a daily basis. He tells the New York Times that, quote, Everything we've done with birds aren't real is made to make sure it doesn't tip into where it could have a negative end result on the world. It's a safe space for people to come together and process the conspiracy takeover of America. It's a way to laugh at the madness rather than be overcome by it, end quote. Fighting conspiracy theories with its own absurd fake theory, the Birds Aren't Real organization points out an important issue with the digital age, lack of media literacy. In a recent article, University of Connecticut journalism professor Amanda Crawford details how fringe ideas can go mainstream online. She says the misinformation that flourished in the wake of the Sandy Hook school shooting nine years ago is the first major conspiracy theory of the modern social media age. According to Crawford, social media became a place to, quote, promote the shooting as a hoax and lure people down that rabbit hole, end quote. With the Sandy Hook case as a precedent, more people started to apply the same language to other mass tragedies like the Boston Marathon bombing and the Charlottesville car attack. More recently, the COVID-19 pandemic has also been painted as a conspiracy theory, with misinformation spreading wide across social media. Conspiracy theories aren't harmless. They have real-world consequences. Victims of mass shootings, bombings, and the pandemic have to deal with people denying their trauma on top of their own personal losses. Learning to differentiate between what information has been fact-checked and which ones are made up helps us become better informed and do less harm. And that's what the Birds Are in Real movement wants us to think about. When you dive so deep into a conspiracy theory only to find out it was made up all along, maybe you'll start to become more aware of the information that you're consuming. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. In today's movie review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies with Lost Leonardo da Vinci paintings and the newest movie in the Marvel Universe. Everybody was complicit in dreaming up lost Leonardo da Vinci. Nobody really cares what the truth is. That was a clip from the trailer for The Lost Leonardo, directed by Danish filmmaker Andreas Kofel, about the controversial discovery and record-breaking sale for over $450 million of the Salvatore Mundi, savior of the world. The reported buyer is a Saudi prince. The painting is either a lost Leonardo da Vinci, a work by one of his students, a copyist, or a restoration gone too far, depending on which expert or investigator or former CIA agent you believe. What is certain 
is that the art world is thoroughly compromised, especially when so much money is at stake. The story begins in the U.S. when Alexander Parrish, an art buyer who looks for catalog mistakes, purchases the painting from a New Orleans dealer for less than $2,000. Parrish and his financial partner, Robert Simon, take the painting to a prominent art historian and restorer, Diane Modestini. The painting is in poor condition and is restored by Modestini, who comes to believe it was done by the master himself. There is also a group of assembled experts who seem to think it may be a Leonardo, but stop short of a declarative statement. There are also a number of art critics and investigative reporters, FBI and former CIA figures, added to the mix. The provenance of the piece is incomplete. Research indicates the sales going back only to 1900. The painting was made in 1500, Da Vinci's time, based on some paint chips, so there is a big gap. The owners try unsuccessfully to sell it to several museums. Whether that was because of a lack of provenance or cost is unclear. Christie's Auction House, undeterred by these questions, sells it as an authentic, undiscovered work. It's ultimately unclear what will happen to the painting. Will the public ever get to see it, or does it just hang in an obscenely rich man's super yacht to impress his friends? Only time will tell. But, to quote Indiana Jones, this belongs in a museum. Now for a superhero movie on the big screen. There are others out there. We need to send them back. So, Scooby-Doo this crap. You know, all this is kind of your mess. I know a couple of magic words myself, starting with the word please. Please, Scooby-Doo this crap. That was a clip from the trailer for Spider-Man No Way Home, directed again by John Watts. This is a fun Marvel movie that picks up where we left off at the end of the last movie. It throws in some good villains, some fun special effects, a pretty good story, and a satisfying, if somewhat sad, conclusion. Tom Holland returns as Spider-Man, whose secret identity as Peter Parker has been revealed to the world, and the media is unrelenting. Regular New Yorkers aren't much better, as Spider-Man rescues MJ, Zendaya, from a crowd. In one of the movie's more enjoyable scenes, MJ is scared going web-swinging through the air, so Spider-Man takes her underground where they have to dodge a subway train. She is eventually deposited safely on a sidewalk close to home. Peter goes home, but a news helicopter is outside his apartment with Aunt May, an exceptional Marisa Torme, as she's breaking up with Happy, John Favreau, Iron Man's former aide. With the media circus outside, they decide to decamp to Happy's cool, more secure apartment. What Happy is doing for a living these days to have such great digs is sadly not revealed. Peter is utterly miserable, but the last straw is the rejection from MIT for him, MJ, and his best bud Ned, a fun Jacob Badalin. So he goes to the one man who can help, Dr. Strange, the always reliable Benedict Cumberbatch. Dr. Strange agrees to help, but in an amusing scene, Strange is interrupted by Peter as he casts a spell to make the world forget Peter Parker is Spider-Man. The plan backfires as the multiverse opens and disgorges several villains fought by Spider-Man on other Earths. For non-Marvel fans, the multiverse contains multiple Earths in separate but parallel dimensions, similar but with differences from our own. So Doc Ock, Alfred Marino, comes through finding Spider-Man on a bridge. Soon he is also fighting Green Goblin, the notable Willem Dafoe, Electro, Jamie Foxx, and a talking lizard. All in all, a fun action-adventure superhero story with some fun twists and sad turns in the last third of the movie. As usual, stay through the end credits for the two teasers for the next Marvel movie. 
See it on the big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern, with thanks to Jonah Chester at the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Wegehout tr- produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Allison Markoski. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. Good night.